Well, hey, everyone, good morning, and welcome to Res City. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. I just want to welcome you. Thank you for being with us here, gathered together to worship God, uh, whether it's your thousandth time. I don't think we've had a thousand Sundays yet as a church, but whether it's in that ballpark or if it's your first time, we're just really glad to have you here worshiping with us, whether you're here or if you're watching online. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into today's sermon. Lord, we thank you that you, uh, as we gather here on Sunday mornings, um, you gather with us, Lord. Your presence is with us. Um, I pray that as we study your word today, God, that your spirit would speak to us and help us to know what it means for us um, to be more like your son, Jesus, God. Give us wisdom through your spirit. Help us to uh, connect to your mind, Lord, like we'll talk about here in, in a little bit, Lord. Help us to connect to your mind through your spirit so that we may be more like Jesus, God, than we, after, after today than we were when we uh, came in this morning, God. We pray this in, in your son's name. Amen. All right, so what I want you to do real quick, we start off the sermon a little bit different than normal today, is turn to your neighbor, turn to someone sitting next to them, and just real quickly, just like in a few seconds, tell them who's the most uh, famous person, the most famous celebrity that you have ever gotten the chance to meet before, okay? Whatever comes to mind first. I know maybe you could spend some time thinking about this, but it's, it's fun to do this sometimes. All right, I'm going to bring you back in here. This is actually something um, that we did in our community group. We, we've since planted, but and I don't know if the community group that we were part of before then still does this, but like we would, uh, for people's birthdays, um, we'd ask them some questions. We'd put you on the birthday hot, hot seat and interrogate you for your birthday. Um, and this is one of the questions that we would ask. So it's always fun to hear. It's always kind of fascinating to hear like, you know, who, who people have met. And I think also, like, who is labeled a celebrity or who, who's labeled a famous person, right? Because we're talking about people with some, some kind of status that is, like, recognized uh, outside, of, you know, or, or as part of the wider culture. So, like, you could say actors or actresses, musicians, I mean, royalty, politicians, athletes, authors, influencers, thinkers, reality show people, news personalities, like you name it. These are all famous people, celebrities. Um, mine, actually, when I answered this question, uh, when I was on the birthday hot suit, I said, when I, when I was in fifth grade, I won a drawing contest in our school, and I got to meet the new governor of Minnesota, a guy named Jesse Ventura. I don't know how many of you guys know who that is. Um, and we kind of welcomed him on the tarmac of our hometown into the city. I was in the local newspaper. Um, and if you know anything about Jesse Ventura, uh, he was actually, like, I think probably the only reason he got elected governor of Minnesota is that he was also a celebrity before that um, from being a WWE wrestler. Um, so it's kind of an interesting phenomenon, the way that we treat celebrities in America. And I feel like we have so many celebrities nowadays. Um, which I was reading something recently about how some theorists kind of note that as actually religion declines in the West, our need for transcendence has not waned with it. And, and so instead what we do is we put that kind of desire for something bigger than us onto other people, celebrities. And we, you know, we kind of ascribe to them this sort of immortal, almost godlike status because they captivate our hearts and direct our emotions. Um, and I think the reason that we, we do that and that we treat celebrities the way we do is that we think the idea of celebrity just kind of makes a lot of sense, right? So, like, if you want to sell something, one of the best ways to do it is to get a famous person to be in your ad. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, like, if you watch 
TV or you're just driving like on the highway, like half the billboards will have some, some famous person on it, right? Even in different levels of fame, maybe, but like that's, that's a way that we sell things. Um, if you want to get people to come watch your movie, cast an A-lister in it. They don't even need to be an actor or an actress. They can be a, 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 a musician and they can do a terrible job of acting in your movie, but you got people to watch the movie and that was the whole point, right? Um, if you, want to, if you want fulfillment for yourself, right, a common path for a lot of people to do that is to try to become a celebrity themselves. In 2014, a researcher named Yalda Alls, I think I'm probably butchering that name, um, she did a study at the UCLA Children's Digital Media Center, and they surveyed kids ages 8 to 12 about their values, and they compared them with previous generations. And so she gave them seven values to choose from as most important to them. They were community feeling, image, benevolence, self-acceptance, financial success, achievement, or fame. And 40% of the kids surveyed picked fame as their top value. Um, there was another 2017 survey of 1,000 British children asking them what, you know, what they wanted to be when they grew up, and the most popular career, future career for them, was YouTuber. Yeah, Okay. Um, the, 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 the researcher, y'all, all I talked about before, she said that they found that the biggest change occurred from 1997 to 2007 when YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter exploded in popularity. Their growth parallels the rise of narcissism and the drop in empathy among college students in the United States. We don't think this is a coincidence, she said. Okay? So wanting to be a celebrity and adoring celebrities is just kind of the, the status quo in America. It's like as American as, as football and, and sugar and cowboys is to love celebrities or maybe to be one, want to be one yourself. Okay, but I want to ask this question today because I think as we study the passage that we're going to be doing in 1 Corinthians, I think we kind of confront this question for ourselves. Is, is celebrity a marker of holiness? Should we use that as a marker for who we think is holy or what we think holiness might look like? Okay, we're, we're in a series um, called Becoming Who We Are. It's a study of 1 Corinthians. And if you uh, were here a few weeks ago or heard that sermon, we kind of talked about how Paul's writing to a very messed up church in Corinth, but he still identifies them at the very beginning of the letter as God's holy people. And so he's challenging them to live into that identity, to become more and more who they already are in Jesus, a holy people. And so what this really is in a lot of ways for us is going to be a study of holiness in the community of Christ followers. And today I want to ask this question. Oh, here we go. That's, that's a new one. Um, can you see if you can get me to the, to the next slide of my sermon here? Um, I want to ask the question. Yeah, here we go. What does holiness look like? Is it look like cruciformity or celebrity? Okay, and I'll explain that word cruciformity here uh, in a little bit, all right? And I want you to keep that idea in mind here of, of holiness, of being set apart. That's how we defined holiness in that first sermon, being set apart for God and what that looks like. I want to keep I want us to keep that in mind as we kind of go throughout the passage, all right? So let me recap the situation here. That's what's going on in Corinth before we hop into it. Um, chapters 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians is really one long section. And as we kind of go through it, and especially as we kind of break it up in, into smaller chunks here for these sermons, it can be easy to kind of lose the forest for the trees. So I want to make sure we have a good understanding of the larger point that Paul's making here. So a problem among many, at least, of the Corinthians is that they are enamored with wisdom and power and eloquence. These are words that Paul actually uses, and, and it seems as if it's leading to have them to have a rift with each other and conflict with Paul as well. 
That's the best we can kind of discern this. Now, why would the Corinthians be valuing wisdom, eloquence, and power? Well, and I think in a lot of ways, it really seems like this is just kind of the status quo, the normal thing that you would chase after if you lived in ancient Corinth. It's sort of the common sense outside the church in Corinth and how you would, what you would seek out for yourself or how you would organize yourself within a community. Because to gain wisdom and power and to be eloquent would boost your status. And getting status in the ancient world as it is today would rocket you up the social ladder, something called the cursus honorum. Um, and in a place like ancient Corinth, which is you know, part of ancient Rome, this was highly, highly valued. So it seems like some in the Corinthian church, they seem to think that wisdom and power could be attained through means of their spiritual gifts, which is something will become a big, big deal later on in the, in the, in the letter to the first, or letter of 1 Corinthians, as well as sort of finding figures who exude wisdom, power, and eloquence and becoming adherents of them and maybe using that to gain status themselves, right? In the ancient world, Julie talked about this a little bit last week, is you had wise sophists and, and rhetors who were like the ancient influencers or podcasters or authors or thinkers of the day. And these were public figures who were well-known for their wisdom and power and eloquence, and they became kind of celebrities. And at the end of the day, it really seems like the Corinthians value status, or we could say they valued celebrity, whether it was trying to gain it for themselves, at least in some small measure, or on someone else's coattails. Okay? And that explains why Paul kind of says to them, I hear you're like, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and, and next, or actually, yeah, in this, in this passage, we'll see that again here in a little bit. That is kind of how they're dividing themselves up. And so, so the Corinthians, they might think to themselves on a surface level, they're acting Christian, right? Because they are themselves spirit people. They're using spiritual gifts. They're, you know, using wisdom and power that they, they, you know, is in the Christian community. They think they're being Christian, but they're drawing on moral resources other than the gospel and on Jesus to know how to use what they have. And so it's not... Christian if it's not Christian, right? The, the word Christ in there really matters. And so the question is, are they actually centering all of this on Jesus Christ? And that's what Paul is going to challenge them to, uh, to do here in our passage, okay? Last week, in last week's uh, passage, Paul gave an example about how they never had any sort of wisdom or power to attract God and the gospel to them in the first place, yet they still received all of that. And, in, and his point was that if that's the case, the pattern is always going to work this way. Now, in today's passage, he's going to turn to make a similar point, but use himself as an example. Okay, so let's read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2 here today. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, you would think that Paul, right, in planting all these churches, this is his MO, Corinth, the church in Corinth is just one of the churches that he's planted. 
you would think that someone who had that level of success going all throughout the ancient uh, uh, Mediterranean, planting all these churches, would be someone who's very magnetic, very captivating, have a very charming personality, right? Like a good celebrity spokesperson for the gospel to get people's attention. The most articulate, someone who had the best sound bites. But that's not right at all, okay? When Paul shows up in Corinth, nobody would have labeled him a mesmerizing communicator who just sort of arrested your attention, right? Instead, he actually exuded weakness to them when he showed up. That's what he says in verse 3. It was in weakness that he came to them initially. Okay, now he doesn't explain that here, and I think it's probably this. When we read the book of Acts, which kind of tells the story of Paul and what had happened right before he comes to Corinth, in just a matter probably of weeks or months, here's what's happened to Paul right before he shows up in Corinth. He'd been beaten by a mob in Philippi. He'd been chased out of three cities. And he had probably stood trial at a place called Mars Hill in the Areopagus in the Parthenon in Athens. Probably, we're not sure, but probably for something called introducing foreign divinities. Like, if you're familiar with that passage in Acts 17, it kind of seems like Paul's at a fun debaters club. But it's probably that he was actually on trial for something there. Okay, and so he had just made it out of all of this stuff when he shows up at Corinth. And on top of that, he traveled a large distance, okay? Think how tough it is to travel, like, I don't know, to across the world and you've got jet lag and that knocks you out for a few days. Okay, travel in the ancient world was like 10 times worse than that. So he shows up to Corinth and he's not showing up looking like some slick, new, incredibly wise, um, polished speaker, okay? It's the opposite of that. But that's the point that Paul is trying to make to them. Because despite all that, the Corinthians still believed the message that he had preached to them, the good news of Jesus. They still saw the power of the Spirit. Okay? And that's likely referring to their ability to believe and also maybe some kind of you know, more charismatic works of the Spirit that were done in their midst. Now for Paul, all, this does, all, all that this does is speak to the power of the gospel. Because in that picture of him showing up to Corinth, okay, bloody and beaten and haggard and exhausted, the Corinthians are experiencing the real power of the Spirit, even though it's in an ugly-looking container. Which just goes to show that their belief didn't come because of any wisdom or any power or any eloquence at all. It simply came because of the hidden uh, and secret power of the Spirit of God in the midst of weakness, tugging at their hearts, tugging them towards faith and allegiance to Jesus. Okay, and so for Paul, this is key. This is super important, okay? All of that is a feature, not a bug, okay? This is incredibly important to understand Paul's thinking, is to understand that they believed in the midst of that weakness that he exuded to them. Because it shows that the gospel doesn't need or want to work according to any kind of status quo or common sense or accepted wisdom of any given era, Instead, it has its own pattern. It marches to the beat of its own drum. And that drumbeat is centered completely on Jesus. Okay, and so despite what the Corinthians likely wanted, Paul's ministry method is never going to be according to celebrity, but according to something that some scholars call cruciformity. Okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, cruciformity centered on the crucifixion. For Paul, his ministry and the character of his churches had to have one thing at the center, Christ crucified. 
Okay, this term cruciformity, it comes from a scholar named Michael Gorman. I don't know, maybe he didn't make it up, but that's where I learned it from. He uses it a lot. And I think there's several dimensions to cruciformity, okay, when we focus on Christ crucified. There's a couple dimensions. First of all, I think it has to do with atonement, the idea that we are sinners, and Jesus takes our sin on himself, okay, this very basic Christian belief of rescue from that through the death of Jesus and a defeat of God's enemies, on the cross, a victory won over sin, okay, means keeping those things at the center. But I think cruciformity has something else to it, and that's the pattern of character, pattern, sorry, the pattern or character of the faith that we walk in after we enter in, one that is a pattern centered around Jesus, okay? And so to help make sense of this, let's look at two important moments that happen at the end of Jesus's ministry. So in all three Gospels, we kind of hear about these two really important moments that happen in the last few days of of what's taking place in the Gospels. The first is when Jesus rides into um, Jerusalem, okay, on a donkey, uh, which doesn't maybe seem exciting, but it was a big deal in this moment, right? He's riding in like a winner of an election, a conquering king, a celebrity. That's how he gets treated as he shows up in Jerusalem. He's celebrated by crowds of people. We remember this as a church on Palm Sunday. And we might think, reading that story, that this is the crux. This is the end of the story. The camera's about to fade to black, and it's about to say the end after Jesus shows up, the happy ending you would expect him to have in his ministry. Okay? And the moral for us would be, you know, we should be triumphant in love too. That's what success looks like. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Okay? Except that the story doesn't end there. Right? As we keep reading... That doesn't lead to anything at all, actually. It's the opposite. And that's where that second moment comes in. That's Jesus on the cross. Okay? The, the crowds abandon him. He goes from being famous to infamous very, very quickly. And common sense, as we read this story, would say, this is a step in the wrong direction. Jesus needs to shift his strategy here because he needs to go back and recapture that celebrity that he used to have. Okay, but for Paul, he talks about this moment, and Jesus clearly believes that this moment for him is the one that is full of glory, that is full of magnificence, that is actually him at his most powerful place as he hangs on the cross as a victim to the, the power of the state, bloody and beaten, a, a total loser is how we might categorize him. But for Paul and for Jesus, this seemingly absurd picture not the great arrival, this seemingly absurd picture of him on the cross, that's the wisdom and the power of God. It's how God's power works, and it's the pattern that he asks us to follow after Jesus in. Okay, the power of God shown in an ugly container. That's what cruciformity is, and that's what it means for us to follow Jesus in that, and for Paul to emphasize that, to want the community of Corinth to be centered on that. So Paul is fighting against these people who kind of crave an ancient form of celebrity, I think. All right? Now, the church has always had this. It's always had people that we kind of hold up. 
We call them holy people. Like the word saints literally comes out of the word holiness, right? And, and some, some, some corners of the church to, to today and throughout history have used that word to describe people. People we want to emulate, we want to um, kind of be like, and we, we want to hold up and say, like, these are people we value, all right? But I think what we can do a lot of times is we can take people like this, we can take holiness, and we can turn it into celebrity, Now, if you want to dig more into this, I'd recommend a book to you um, by an author named Caitlin Beatty. The book is called Celebrities for Jesus, and I think it's it's fantastic. It's really good. Um, She argues that we have a celebrity problem in the church today, and I would actually agree with her, I think, quite a bit. Now, she defines a celebrity as someone who is known for being well-known. That's what a celebrity is. They're known because they're well-known, and they have social power without proximity to the people who adore them. Now, celebrity, as she defines it, feeds on mass media, TV, movies, music, um, books, social media, all these different things that, where people are mediated to us. That's what mass media means. And what it does, it, it brings us into a, a feeling of connection with these people, but it's an illusion of intimacy with them, right? We think we know them, and we think that they, they love us, right? They, we feel known by them, perhaps, as we interact with them, but all of it's mediated, and it's, it's not true, right? And I think this is another important part of this. What mass media does is it tells us who is important, who we should know about, who we should follow, where we should have our attention drawn, all right? Now, think about what this does to us, okay? We know way more facts about movie stars, musicians, athletes, and other celebrities than we do our own neighbors or our friends or, you know, people that we're in community group with. So I could, I bet you that a lot of people in this room, okay, and I'm the same actually, and I don't even like Taylor Swift all that much, but I could tell you Taylor Swift's life story better than I could, like, a lot of people I know fairly well. Think about how crazy that is right? That's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but it's true. That's how we uh, deal with celebrities. And this is very normal in America. And I think the American church has followed suit. We've created all of our own celebrities, celebrity pastors, celebrity uh, Christian musicians, celebrity athletes, authors, thinkers, social media personalities. We've kind of done the same thing within the church. And Caitlin Beattie says this in the book, the American church has overall mimicked celebrity culture rather than challenged it. We have too many institutions built around personalities, people with immense social power but little or no proximity. We're well past the point of thinking of celebrity as a neutral tool. Celebrity is a feature, not a bug, of the contemporary evangelical movement. She continues, in a mass media culture driven by visual appeal, slick marketing, and personal branding, celebrity is just one more tool Christians have used to reach people for Christ. Okay, and I'm paraphrasing this section here a little bit just to kind of bring it down, but some Christian leaders have used this well as merely a tool to build the kingdom. But other Christians have reached for the tool of celebrity and found that it isn't really a tool at all. It has more power over the user than the user has over it. It turns out to be a wild animal, cunning, slippery, and insidious. And that wild animal is now tearing up the house of God from the inside out. Okay, so kind of some harsh words from her, but I think important ones, things like ones we need to hear and listen to. Okay? Now remember how we said celebrity works. Uh, you're known for being well-known, being told who's important through the mass media that we're engaging with. Right? And so we look at celebrity figures that created with, get created within the church, and we often think of them as the most important people in the world, as the holiest people out there. And the reason is simply because they're successful. 
right? They're interviewed on all the podcasts. They get interviewed by all the important podcasts. They have, they have all the bestsellers, right? And, and actually in the book, if you read it, she kind of talks about what goes into like creating bestsellers and authorship. And it's really, it's really interesting. Um, uh, or interesting in the Minnesota sense of it, like, oh boy, uh, you know? Okay. Um, some of them, they drive nice cars. They live in shockingly large mansions when you actually find out where they live. They, they, they travel around the world. They wear fantastic outfits. They always seem very important and busy. They look good. They're charming. They're charismatic. They're smart. They're articulate. They have answers to everything, right? And they have all kinds of accolades, right? They're, and they're, a lot of times, they are the example in their books or their sermons, right? If we just kind of have the faith that they do, have the habits that they have, you know, we can become successful and happy with Jesus just like them. Now, as Carl Truman points out, what happens when we start to really uh, find ourselves going that route is that the preacher is both the salesman and the product being sold, okay? They become a brand. They become a lifestyle. And the effect is that People know about these people. We know their names. We think of them as important, as holy. We just trust what they say implicitly without ever, often without ever having read a book or listened to a sermon or, or whatever of them on our own. We just have been told they're important. We don't know anything about their theology, their character, for sure. We don't know anything about it, okay? They become celebrities in the truest sense. They're known for their well-knownness. Now, like BD points out, for some of these figures, this is not the goal, right? Celebrity is not the goal. It's a tool that they found themselves having without asking for it, and they choose to use it for a good purpose, okay? And that's good. I think we should celebrate that, okay? But for a lot of Christians, a lot of times, like she says, I think it's no accident, right? You can see that there's work being put into this by themselves or the institutions that they're part of to sort of cast themselves this way. I remember one time uh, that I saw a, a fairly well-known pastor on, on, on Instagram, and he kind of had a little video of his office, and I could see on the wall he had numbers tracking certain important things to him, and one of them was Instagram followers. And I thought, that seems kind of a weird thing to like be tracking and find as one of your most important metrics for your ministry, but it was up there. Okay? And this has an effect on all of us, right? I imagine a lot of you in this room have been a part of churches for a long time, okay? But if you're honest, and I would say this about myself too, um, and I can for sure have seen myself have this happen to me in, in churches I've been a part of where I was kind of a, a regular layperson, um, the, the people that you've never met that are these kind of mediated to you as some sort of celebrity are more influential on your faith than maybe the actual pastors or leaders in your community group or whatever than, that you have. And you don't realize it's happening, but if someone says something on a podcast that you hear or you read it in a book, that is going to actually mean way more to you uh, than maybe something that someone who knows you really well is going to tell you. Okay? That's the power of celebrity, this power without proximity. And it seems like common sense because it's how we do everything else today, right? We, we feel some sort of intimacy with someone through a screen or a book or headphones because that's just common sense, right? But I don't think it's as great as we think it is all the time. And if we're honest, it's led to lots of, lots of awful things in the church. It's led to scandals, churches falling apart, people losing their faith entirely, deep loneliness, both on the part of the celebrities but also on the people who adore them. Um, a, a sort of malformed vision for what it means to follow Jesus that is kind of nowhere in uh, the pages of Scripture. Okay, so I think it's important for us to grapple with this and understand the way that it works, okay? Again, there can be a lot of good that comes from this, 
right? In the book, uh, Caitlin Beattie contrasts fame and celebrity. I don't want to say that there isn't value in, in finding public figures that we want to look at them and say they are a great example of what it means to follow Jesus or learn from them. I don't want to discourage you at all from learning from wise and, and Christ-like authors and pastors that are out there. It's, an, it's a huge gift that we have access to them, all right? And they can inspire us to be a model. I think someone who's really important to me um, Tim Keller, who died recently, was a great example of this. And I was actually really encouraged after his passing. So many people have come out and shared stories about how um, he, he was very conscious of avoiding these pitfalls and trying to not um, have himself be crafted as a sort of celebrity. Hey, God can use fame, right? God can use this for his glory, But the problem is this human wisdom that says, let's take this sort of good fame and let's turn it into celebrity because that seems more effective and successful and personally satisfying for everyone. Okay, and this idea of human wisdom really connects us back into the passage. So I want to take that on-ramp back into it here and read you a little bit more. Now, I'm going to read a lot of text here. I apologize. It's kind of a dense passage, so I'm going to read it to you and kind of explain what's going on um, after it. It's, it's honestly maybe one of the hardest, kind of densest passages in 1 Corinthians, all right? So here we go. 1 Corinthians 2, or 10 to 16, and then we'll do... Um, Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not come, uh, sorry, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to the world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you were controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like people of the world? Okay, what Paul is saying here is that God has not given us, or has, sorry, that, that, that God has given us not some kind of spirit of the world that is built on human wisdom or human judgments. That word kind of shows up multiple times in the passage. It's a Greek word, sukakoi. Um, but what he instead has given us and calls us to walk in is the spirit of God, of Jesus, of cruciformity. Okay, when we talk, when we walk in the Spirit of God, we understand God because the Spirit of God understands God. That's what verses 10 to 13 are saying. And so the Spirit connects us to the mind of God. It helps us to understand God's mind. But when we walk primarily in human wisdom, we aren't walking in God's Spirit. And therefore, we aren't able to discern God's mind. And essentially, Paul, what Paul is saying is that we must walk in the Spirit of God and be sensitive to His Spirit rather than walking primarily in some kind of human wisdom, okay? Because if we do, we have the mind of Christ. 
We are connected to God's mind. The Corinthians instead had chosen to found their community, to found their discipleship and their, uh, on some form of human wisdom instead of God's spirit. Right? And this has led them to fall back into their human base kind of desires. Now, the NLT translates this, the New Living Translation, which we're using here, translates this, your sinful nature. I actually don't think that's a great translation. I think fleshly is closer, with the idea being you're just falling back into your base human desires. You're into jealousy, into fighting over personalities, right? To, to adore celebrity or to try to gain it for yourself in some way. Okay, so this is the big idea here. Now, let me, let me say a word here quickly on this idea of human wisdom, all right? Human wisdom, I don't think Paul is saying it's inherently bad, right? And it's not like it has no value. I don't think Paul's saying that here, okay? So much of what we do depends on human wisdom. It helps us to understand the world that God has created and to manage it well, to kind of fulfill our duties in a lot of ways as uh, image bearers of God who are tasked with uh, cultivating uh, life in God's world. We, we use a lot of human wisdom to do that, right? Think about it. You got in a car that someone invented using human wisdom. They didn't read the Bible. The Spirit of God did not tell them how to create that car to get here, um, but that's a good thing. Um, if you work a, a job, your job uses some sort of human wisdom in it. If you work at a company that makes great dog food, well, where did, where did you come up with the great recipe for dog food that you make, that dogs love, make some wag their tails and be all happy? Is some sort of human wisdom, right? This is not a bad thing. If you're a parent, you're using good techniques to raise your kid, a lot of that has made up of human wisdom, stuff we have learned from using the wisdom that humans, as they come together, can sort of gain. There's a lot we can learn from it and the world um, uh, and ourselves. That is human wisdom, I think we could call it. I think what we always have to remember is that none of those things leads us to the mind of God. And that's the contrast here. Okay? To have the kind of power and wisdom experiencing Jesus in, and his cruciformity. Right? And I think that's the difference that Paul is getting at here. That's why that's such a value. And that's why we have to keep a focus on that right? Because that connects us to the mind of God, to the deep wisdom that the world is founded on, beyond things like natural laws. And so we have to be careful to not let those forms of human wisdom come to influence us and our churches and our very selves in an inordinate way, like what was happening in Corinth, to water down or dilute them to the point that what makes us and the gospel special and unique, the hidden wisdom of God, becomes obscured in some way right? Common sense says if we want more people to follow Jesus, the church should look as much like the world around us as possible. That would be really effective, right? Um, It would say, turn your pastors into celebrities because people love celebrities. That's a great idea. It would say, you know, run your church just like any other business. Like, that would, that would be the most successful thing, right? It would say, get rid of the weird stuff that you guys believe in, right? Uh, get rid of the, some, the crazy belief like someone coming back from the dead. Um, get rid of the idea that there's a God who wants to speak to us and has used humans to put together a book that is inspired by God, that still speaks to us today. Um, get rid of ideas like God judges evil in the world. That's uncomfortable. People don't like to hear that kind of news. So maybe get rid of it, right? But if we do that... What kind of Jesus are we introducing people to? Are we introducing to the, them to the one who has true wisdom and power from God himself? Or are we introducing them to a mirror? 
Okay? I think there can be a lot of pressure on us a lot of times in the church to quit being what makes us unique and holy, being set apart, like what we talked about in that first sermon, and instead to rely on some sort of human wisdom instead of Jesus, to put our reliance in the status quo of the human wisdom around us. But when we do that, we're tapping out of the power that did all the hard work of making what we believe is true about Jesus and the gospel possible. Is it worth it? I don't think so. I really don't think it is. If we want to tap into God's hidden power, cruciformity, the cross, is the way to do it. Now, I think one of the reasons we love celebrity so much, um, or sorry, one of the reasons a love of celebrity is such a threat to cruciformity is that at its basis, it's, there's an idea that wealth and happiness and a big lifestyle of success defined in those terms um, is what constitutes a life well lived. And so we ought to be seeking those things out. That's been a temptation I definitely have felt in ministry, right? So many of the pastors I looked up to when I was sort of training to be in ministry, even before I got into training, when I was still in college, and I thought about this is what it would look like for me to be a successful, holy person. I looked at them and I thought this is what it must look like to become a celebrity, to have some sort of status like this. That's what it must look like, right? I think to some degree we all kind of have that notion, right? In whatever work we do or whatever vocation we set ourselves towards. Okay, but when I think about it, I think back on the deepest moments that I've had of actually meeting God, of feeling like I had understood the mind of God, of walking in his spirit. It was not from these very mountaintop successful moments where I felt like I had these things, wealth, happiness, a big lifestyle. Okay? I didn't ever felt like I met God in those moments. Okay? I didn't feel like I was riding on a donkey into Jerusalem being celebrated by everybody. That's not when I have ever really felt like I met God. Instead, it's been at my most broken moments, where I've been closest to Christ crucified, that I have felt I've understood the mind of God through the Spirit of God. And I think if we're honest, if you think back to yourself about the moments you felt like you've connected with God the most, Maybe not all of them, but many, many, many of them have been in those moments too, where you felt the most like Jesus. That's when you felt the power, the wisdom of God, the most growth, the most profound growth in your life has come in those moments. That's when God's power has been most at work in you. That's where Jesus met us, not in success, not in fame, okay? And that's what we should expect. Okay, so as we close here, I want to just put a few different questions up on the screen for you to kind of think about as we uh, enter into a time of of worship and communion together. And there's just some questions about what does it look like to value cruciformity in our churches over celebrity? Okay, so these are designed to get you thinking a little bit. But I think as we start to think of following Jesus in these ways, we're going to get closer to that heart of cruciformity than to some other vision for what it looks like to flourish and follow Jesus, okay? So let me read those, and then, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll enter into that time of worship. First off, um, quit thinking of uh, your personal happiness or flourishing as the end goal in all you do. Second, see suffering, hardship, pain, and grief not as things to run from, but as an opportunity to grow deeper roots in Christ's love. Teach yourself that God doesn't need your competency. He just wants your heart. Realize losing can be more powerful than winning. 
believe God desires to be with and work through the unsuccessful and average. And trust that God often does his most powerful work in ugly containers. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to become people of high status in order to receive the gift of your grace. We don't have to um, work in some way to attain the ability to, to have your spirit or to know your mind. In fact, Lord, it's when we are at our most broken, when we look the most like Jesus himself crucified, Lord, that we are clo- most closely connected to you. I pray that you'd help us to have wisdom to know what it looks like to walk in that pattern throughout our lives, God, um, to know where to embrace those moments, Lord, to have hope and comfort in those moments when we experience them, and to know that in those moments we are closest to Christ and that you are, you are the most close to us, God. Um, help us to discern that and to seek it out despite the pressure that is so, so much around us, kind of pushing us away from that, God. Just help us to be able to resist that so that we may more closely connect with your son, Jesus, in a cruciform way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.